Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Amarnath Amarasingham. What is the role of religion in the military? What are the roles of religious chaplains in the military? How are important issues such as post-traumatic stress, religious and ethnic diversity, and related concerns dealt with in the Canadian forces? Joanne Benham Rennick's groundbreaking book, Religion in the Ranks, Belief and Religious Experience in the Canadian Forces, approaches these issues head-on. Based on extensive interviews with chaplains and with personnel of various religious and spiritual backgrounds, the book provides much-needed insight into the religious lives of military personnel. How do soldiers who have endured difficult assignments, witnessed atrocities, and perhaps experienced feelings of ongoing isolation cope? How important is religion and spirituality in this coping process? How are all these questions further complicated by the increasing ethnic, cultural, and religious diversity of the military personnel themselves? We talked to Joanne about these and related matters, such as the difficulties involved in obtaining access to do research on the military in the first place, and some of the challenges faced by military personnel after they return home. Um, so thanks for joining us, Joanne. I hope you're having a good morning. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, it's a very interesting book. So, uh, but before we get into that, I was wondering um, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, where you went to school and how you became, how you first became interested in religion. Uh, my background is sociology of religion. I did the uh, PhD program um, in religion in North America through Laurier and Waterloo. I was a Waterloo student. Um, I came to this particular topic for this book. Uh, just because I had been following the situation as it developed uh, in Rwanda during the genocide there. And one of the things that struck me very poignantly was um, when Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire, who had led that uh, cohort of soldiers there in that the task force in Rwanda, when he returned and when he spoke about his experience, he used very religious language, which was considerably unusual coming from someone who was uh, a leading general in a in a very secular, very public institution. He was using very traditional language to describe what he had experienced and what he had seen. And he was using very traditional Christian language. So, for me, that kind of was reminiscent of that old expression that there are no atheists in foxholes, because um, General Belair was not someone who would have described himself as particularly religious, and yet when he faced this horrific context of people being butchered and slaughtered in the street, he fell back on this kind of language. There was no other way for him uh, to describe what he'd seen. So I, that was sort of the, the starting point for me in terms of investigating what does religion look like? How does it act? What role does it play in uh, uh, a putatively secular institution that is representative of Canada on multiple fronts, not just at home, uh, but abroad and doing many different things abroad, humanitarian aid or disaster relief or conflict, uh, peacekeeping, a whole raft of things. What role does religion play, if any? So that was kind of my, my starting point for the book. And that's kind of where I come at it from. 
So his uh, his statement that 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 uh, stood out to you was from the late '90s or so. Yeah. So he was talking about you've probably heard of the film that was made, Shake Hands with the Devil, and he yeah, and yeah. he talked about having having experienced pure evil. That it at uh, you know the darkest moments there, he he felt he actually felt that there was a uh, there was a, a, a almost a physical force of evil, and then he also had a different experience of some some sense of peace, some sense of Hope, and he felt that it was almost a transcendent experience, and he couldn't explain that, and he didn't try to explain that. He just said, "That's where, that's how it was. Like it, it was this for us, uh, and we were in the deepest pit of despair, thinking that it was all over, and there was almost this sense of transcendent something with us." So he he was, you know, labeling his personal experience, but he also talked about um, the. The carnage that was happening and the the pitting of neighbor against neighbor. He talked about that in in religious language. Language. He talked about that as pure evil. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I read his book uh, "Shake Hands with the Devil" a while ago, and I'm, I'm I, it still kind of haunts yeah, me sometimes. Yeah, it is. It's a very disturbing book. You know, it's the kind of it almost takes a piece out of you when you read it. You you just think, "Ooh." So, yeah, and that yeah. and that really comes across when you speak to him. And when I spoke to him, he. He, he, you know, elucidated that, that it just essentially, it did take a piece of him. Uh, and his, his experiences after that conflict, I think, show that very poignantly because like so many people who have faced trauma, he, he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and he had issues with, you know, drug and alcohol abuse and, uh, just not able to cope with, uh, the mundane, life that he returned to after seeing such horrific things. And uh, interestingly, again, one of the things he described um, was that he, he found a lot of solace. Not being a religious person, he actually did find solace in religious spaces. Um, and, and that wasn't true for all of the veterans of that experience because a lot of people were very, very aggressively angry at religion because religion was a very significant part of that conflict. And in fact, um, Religious leaders were involved in that in that conflict and in inciting violence. So it was a very um, confusing kind of uh, situation for people who were religious. Uh, but in his case, he described being able to walk into um, places of worship and to just sit in the peace and the silence and uh, find a sense of uh, sanctuary there. And I thought that was kind of interesting too, because he, you know, he said that that wasn't really his way prior to that experience but somehow that had resonance for him after the fact you mean while he was in Rwanda he found uh, no after oh after he was being treated for post-traumatic stress disorder even before that uh, that he was able to go and just sit in the silence of a of a you know a place of worship didn't matter which like just that he could go sit in it and feel a sense of sanctuary there in the silence in the darkness in the quiet uh, and that was meaningful for him. Hmm. Uh, in terms of the academic context, um, is, is it uh, is the literature on religion in the military or religion and the military um, fairly large or not? Oh really? my goodness, it's virtually non-existent. <laughs> it is really challenging. And even in the last uh, you know couple of years, I've had a number of people uh, from the states and Canada that are kind of interested in in doing some work. In this area, and you know, they're asking me to guide them to some of the literature, and I'm I'm literally saying to them, well, best of luck, because there just there there really isn't very much on this topic. There's a fair bit of material um, linked to the chaplains and chaplaincy. Uh, there's a little bit of material linked to um, diversity, but there's really nothing that that takes a sociological examination of of the the connecting points between those issues. So whether you're a believer or whether you're a practitioner and whether you're a member uh, and the place that religion, the the way that religion ties or links those various identities together, there just, there hasn't been very much done at all. Just, just recently, a colleague of mine in the States published, a, uh, again, it, it follows many of the same themes as mine, but it looks very specifically at chaplaincy. Uh, so there's, it's a, it's, there's a real shortage, so it would be a great area for people that are looking for uh, fields to examine. That would be a, there's lots of room to do more work there. 
What? How do you explain the lack of uh, research? Or is it is it just kind of the church and state issue, or is it is it uh, issue of access, or is it something? It's else? Definitely, I would say it's both of those for sure. Um, because you know, to some degree, uh, the the military doesn't really necessarily want to know, or doesn't want to. It has bigger <laughs> issues that it does want to address, and I think that. Um, especially, especially right now. I mean, the focus is on what can we cut, uh, and you know, for the last few decades, except for a few blips there, that's really been on what can we cut. So there's a, a disinclination to looking at areas that need special funding or special resources or that kind of thing. Uh, but on on the flip side, there are many, many good uh, people that are concerned with issues of social justice and access in the military. And there's also a, a military mandate to serve the whole person. So they have to supply the resources that people need. That includes basic things like, you know, food and housing, but also um, socio-emotional, spiritual supports. So there's there it's tightly controlled from the military's point of view. It's a very uh, challenging area to start talking about, and they're concerned about who's doing it, how they're doing it, what they're doing it for. Um, and as a civilian trying to work with that within that context, that also is going to require anybody who approaches it uh, to have a certain level of tenacity and determination because it's a very challenging uh, context to get your, your foot in the door. Um, the other point that you mentioned, though, was... Uh, an issue. Access. Yeah, the access and access to to finding the right people, the key people, and people moving all over the country all the time. You know, so that was a challenge for me. I'd I'd make a contact, and they would say, "Yeah, okay, that's great. We'll meet." And then I would get a phone call or an email saying, "Yeah, I'm actually I've been moved to Cold Lake," or I've you know, <laughs> and be like, "Wow, okay, that's not going to work out." So, or you know, or the the um, most of the um, Minority groups. When I was trying to contact people that you know belong to a very uh, a group that represented a very small minority within uh, the forces, they a lot of those people belong in the reserves, or sorry, they don't belong in the reserves. They're in the reserves, um, and they're linked to the larger cities around Canada. And they were often hard to connect with just because uh, they were either being deployed often, or they kind of didn't know where they'd be, or they had full time jobs, or they were kind of you know, moving around, doing other things with their lives. So it it's challenging to, if you're trying to conduct interviews with people, uh, it's, it's difficult uh, to find them. And it's not like you can just walk in and say, ah, oh, great, I've got my focus group, they're right here, they're going to stay here. They just, they're, they're all over the place. Right. I mean, in terms of when you mentioned tightly controlled, were, were there any bureaucratic impediments to getting access to the military? Do you, like, what is the permissions that you need to get? Yeah, you have to go through a fair number of hoops, actually, to do that. You've got to, in addition to your own institution's um, ethics approval, you've got to right. get approval from um, a board within uh, the military, and you need to also have an endorsing uh, agency, so you need to get sponsorship, essentially, is what it's called. So some body within uh, the military has to essentially identify your research project as relevant and essential uh, to military objectives. And once you have that, then you can approach their ethics board and uh, have them review what you're proposing, have them revise it, have them uh, you know, identify any concerns or issues and, and put their qualifiers on it. And with respect to my work, that included things like, you know, th there was a, a sensitivity to the fact that we have a very small force in Canada and that at the time that I was doing my research, people had been on multiple, multiple rotations and they were very tired and they were um, worn down. And there had also been numbers of studies where one of the research uh, review members said to me, you know, our people, they've been poked and prodded and interviewed and harassed, and we really don't want any additional research going on them than is absolutely necessary. So they were very sensitive to the fact that, you know, these are human beings, these are not guinea pigs, we can't just use them over and over again, and we want to make sure that what you're doing here is something that will, in, in the long run, benefit these people. Uh-huh. So I, I imagine the uh, 
the ethics approval even at the university and, and at the military in terms of uh, that question they ask about trauma and, uh, you know, uh, are you going to force people to relive their experiences? Uh, was that a kind of long-term process in terms of getting, oh, that, uh, getting that approved? Yeah, that was a very arduous. <laughs> <laughs> there were so many things about that project that involved um, tenacity and perseverance and patience uh, because, there, yes, there were a lot of concerns around that. And for obvious reasons, you know, people have been through really devastating experiences. The last thing you want is somebody coming along and, picking out a scab just because they mm-hmm. want to get their, you know, their PhD and get out the door onto their own life. So obviously that, that would be, that is a big concern. And, um, you know, both, uh, my ethics review board and, the the military review board, we're, we're saying, you know, how are you going to handle this? You have to have these parameters in place. We want to guarantee that people will, know what their options are and that people will not be pushed to tell stories that they're not comfortable telling you and that they shouldn't be asked to speak to you if they are not volunteering of their, you know, their own interest and their own purposes. And obviously that was what I wanted too. You don't, you don't want to destroy somebody in the process. Mm-hmm. So who were you able to interview in terms of methodology and, and, and were they willing to talk for the most part or was there yeah, difficult? What the, where I really got lucky was I made some excellent contacts within the uh, chaplain branch and the chaplains were obviously people who are interested in knowing the state of religion within the forces and because that is not data that is... Um, compiled and you know analyzed it's it's gathered because everybody needs to have it stamped on their dog tags and in their personal record and people need to know it in case there's an incident and they want a uh, religious leader to support them it's not the kind of information that is statistically compiled and analyzed so the chaplains themselves were very interested in the project and they were interested in hearing what members were saying about religion, whether it was kind of a, do they consider this a relic? Do they consider it a nuisance? Um, is it valuable to them? If so, in what ways? Uh, and so those guys and women were the door that opened for me and really gave me my first toehold into uh, the military context. And they were superbly generous with their own time and also with helping me to uh, locate units and um uh, commanders that would be able to say, well, I think, you know, we could probably put this out here and ask people if they're interested and they can contact you. And that was really great. So that was how I found people. And then once I found a few individuals, often they would be talking to me and they'd be saying, you know, I had this conversation with right, you might want to talk to, and then they'd give me another name. And so it was that snowball effect, you know, that I found one and then I found another and then I found 10 more. Uh, and in some cases, I really had to hunt people down because they were just there just weren't that many of them, you know, or or else wherever they were, again, they'd just been shipped out, <laughs> or they had they had uh, not not uh, stayed in the region wherever I was long enough for me to be able to actually have a real conversation with them. So there were some cases where it was a matter of. Uh, there's a there's a great blog that's done. It's called CF Seek, and it's a group of Sikhs, Sikh reservists, and uh, they write about their various experiences in uh, in the forces. And that was great. You know, I tried to connect with those guys about five different times, and they inevitably they somebody in that group was always out of the country. They were being shipped out. They were on maneuvers. They were in training. And so in the end, most of the, the the work that I did with those guys was based on their already published material on their website and on their blog. But, you know, you kind of have to make do when there is no literature in the field. You kind of you have to dig up based on what's, what's available. right? So it, it, was a, it was an interesting experience, that's for sure. Um, right, right away in the introduction of the book, you talk about um, you know what sociologists call the late late modern approach to religion. I wonder if you can elaborate on what what you mean by that and how that's how that proved to be important in studying. Yeah, I think that's maybe one of the most interesting aspects of studying religion today is just that it's it's not one thing. If it ever really was one thing, it, it certainly isn't today. Um, but, you know, people have this notion, when you say the word religion, people have this notion of, oh, yeah, I know what that is. But when you start to talk to a group of people about what religion is, you, it immediately becomes clear that everybody in the group has a different idea 
of what religion is. And so when we talk about the late modern approach to religion, we're really talking about a subjectivized and individualized approach to religious belief or religious thinking or religious practice. And that's where the the waters get really muddy. Um, so we can't just take, you know, the dictionary definition of, uh, you know, say, uh, a Hindu and say, well, this is this is what a Hindu is and this is what a Hindu does. This is how a Hindu acts. This is what a Hindu eats. You can't do that because inevitably you find someone who doesn't do any of those things or does only a third of those things or does a few of those things, but also does several other things that the Buddhist is doing and that the Muslim is doing. And so you suddenly have uh, an individual who's a composite of all these different uh, traditions and then maybe has thrown in a few of their own sort of, well, my granny used to do that. It has nothing to do with religion, I don't think, but I just like it. So you've, you've got a very uh, strange... Um, bricolage of of different approaches to expressing and engaging with that which is, I suppose, the transcendence, that which is beyond us, that we can't understand, uh, that we uh, think of when we think about the big questions, the big issues of life. And so it becomes much more of a spiritual kind of uh, framework or language, which of course scholars of religion, they just hate that even more than trying to nail down the, the definition of religion. You start using the word spiritual and people just start rubbing their temples and going, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so, but on the other hand, it makes for some very, very interesting conversations with people. When you start to engage with them in a way that moves them beyond that you know, notion of orthodox religion, people really are interested and they're really engaged with those topics. And I had some of my most interesting interviews were with people that were absolutely not religious and would emphatically state, I'm not religious. I don't care about religion. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I don't approve of it. I'm an atheist or I'm, I'm an agnostic or I don't go or blah, blah, blah. But they would say just the most wonderfully insightful things about their own sense of uh, their spiritual nature and their their way of engaging beyond the physical and the absolute and the obvious, and uh, that was really neat. So that's a that was a an interesting aspect of that uh, late modern context of religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you go on to provide a kind of historical sketch of the chaplaincy in the Canadian military, and uh, I was wondering I mean, without going into t- t- details. That are that, that are probably outside the the focus of the podcast. But um, what, what surprised you most about the historical shifts that happened in the Canadian military? Well, it's interesting to think about. You know, people. The chaplaincy really initially developed because, well, for a number of reasons. But one of the interesting things was that religious leaders volunteered to go and uh, participate in World War One and World War Two, simply in order to provide support to um, Canadian men that had enlisted. And they so they acted as soldiers, but they also acted as um, the camp scouts, if you want to say it that way. Like they were the they were people that would help people interpret uh, letters that, you know, people that were illiterate and couldn't write a letter home to their loved ones. It would be would be the educated chaplain that was sitting in the camp with them, or they would help, uh, they would do things like manage um, the camp um, meals for them, and they'd, they'd facilitate and they'd, they'd boost morale and they'd do things like that. And it was after the Second World War where there was recognition that they actually were providing a very beneficial and important role, made, making a significant contribution. Uh, and so that was kind of interesting. It was a voluntary effort by people who believed that uh, that the people in the field really, they needed something, some kind of a support that was beyond just leadership or, or morale boosting. It was actually a spiritual kind of support. And as a result, that became an embedded institution within the Canadian forces itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there's a in, interesting term that you use later on in the book where you talk about how Western uh, or how people have described the Western military after the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, in terms of the postmodern military. Mm-hmm. Um, is that just a Canadian thing or is that uh, how? No, that's used widely in the military 
Uh, let's what is that? What is that? What is meant by it's, that term? It's that a military force is no longer simply just a force for combat, and that it engages um, multiple groups uh, for multiple purposes, and that it can incorporate civilian roles, and that it might be doing humanitarian roles, and it might be doing all kinds of roles at the same time on the same mission. Uh, that it might, so many of our task force uh, situations now are involve a Canadian unit going in and then working with, you know, four or five different nations units on a shared project. So, for example, um, you know, with the earthquake in Haiti, uh, we have forces going in from different countries to provide humanitarian aid and reconstruction and also to uh, provide policing. So they're doing multiple activities at the same time. They're from a number of different nations, and they're working together for a shared mission. So that's a, a different kind of uh, military focus than we've seen, you know, in in times past, where it's really we have an enemy and we're going in to destroy the enemy, and that's what we do as a military force. So it's a change dynamic there. And has there been a I mean, I mean, I would imagine if you're if the military is involved in civilian roles, there's a kind of backlash from the population sometimes, and, and has that had an effect on morale and things like that? Oh, frequently that's an issue. So there's a whole a whole genre of literature in, in um, military sociology that talks about civil military relations, and and uh, you know, with the whole Iraq and Afghanistan situation, there was the the motto was winning hearts and minds, right? So it was the idea that we were trying to engage people, trying to get civilians and locals to understand us as uh, not the bad guy, not the warrior, not the the uh, neo-colonial, but somebody who's here because we're concerned for the welfare and we want to work together with them, we want to collaborate, and we want to change this situation. Um, so definitely there has been a lot of attention paid to that. Um, I think also other conflicts we could look at, you know, in, in Bosnia, for example, there was, it was very difficult, um, to be placed in a role that was, uh, supposedly a peacekeeping role or an observer role and then see atrocities happening and not be allowed to intervene. And a number of the people I interviewed talked about that as one of the most stressful aspects of their work, that they'd be places, they'd see horrible things happening, and they were not allowed to stop them because that was not their defined role for that mission. So I think the civil-military link is a really poignant one, and one that, uh, again, would really benefit from more investigation and more, more discussion, more analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, what has been the religious makeup of the Canadian forces for, I guess, this, this historical sketch that you talk about? Um, and when did that start to change along with, uh, you know, the, sh- the shifts in immigration and broader Canadian society? Or is that uh, or is it has it been separate from mainstream shifts? Well, it largely follows and has followed the Canadian um, religious demographic. So you have majority largest majority from a Christian background, how much they're actually involved with their tradition is hard to say because um, people who enlist in in the military tend to be still young men who, uh, if we can trust the census data, uh, are the least religiously inclined group to begin with, but they come from um, families and um, communities that have largely identified themselves as Christian majority of those Catholic, uh, and then, uh, you know, a subset of those that you can see the tables in the book, but it breaks down, includes all kinds of different um, Protestant denominations. And then we have very small pockets of non-Christian groups. Um, and to some degree, you know, Muslims and uh, Jewish groups have been present, less so other traditions until more recently. Uh, but during World War Two, uh, for sure, there were Jewish people involved in both. Actually, both wars, there were definitely uh, documentation of, of Jewish participation. Um, and then more recently, we're seeing, as as the demographic in Canada changes, we're definitely seeing a larger influx of, of groups that have not historically been identified in the Canadian military. So Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists. Um, other groups like that, always a large contingent of uh, Aboriginals, but the Aboriginals often are um, 
also Christian rather than uh, Aboriginal spirituality. So they tend to, if we're talking about religion exclusively, they tend to be um, subsumed under that heading rather than Aboriginal spirituality. Why is that? Oh, because largely in Canada, Aboriginals are Christians. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of how these minority religious groups are, have have been coping, is, is uh, what have what has been some of the challenges they've experienced, or or has there been general accommodation? Well, I think this was a, an issue along the lines of, uh, you know, in the states, it was the "don't ask, don't tell" uh, policy yeah. towards uh, homosexuals, and then you know we had in Canada the integration of women was a big big ordeal because it was. You know, this is this is a hassle. This is this changes the way we do things. This decreases efficiency. So I think, similar to those challenges, the integration of minorities has both been a necessary um, evolution and also fraught with resistance uh, from from those who see it as taking away their traditions and their their own culture. So you've got groups that are saying, no, we don't we don't want minorities in here. We don't want people that don't look like us and act like us and talk like us and dress like us and eat like us. And then there are others saying, well, that's absurd. You know, this is who we are as Canadians. So so I think that um the people that I spoke to, um, minority groups that I spoke to and individuals uh, said that by and large they were treated well, but mostly what they faced was a lack of understanding. And it wasn't malicious misunderstanding, it was just that, you know, I'm not a religious person, so I have no idea why you are doing this. Like, I don't understand why you're wearing that, or I don't understand why you have to get different rations while we're out in the field, or I don't understand why you get time off to do uh, you know, prayer or whatever it is that you are doing that you claim to be a religious thing because I'm not religious, so I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. So that I think would be the biggest hindrance that people have faced. Other groups have said that they found people very, very generous and tolerant, um, but self-conscious about asking. So feeling guilty almost that they didn't understand and, and they would argue that, you know, if there could be more opportunities for discussion, and more opportunities to just sit down and talk about those differences, then it would be easier to relate and understand and then move forward as a cohesive unit. Right. Uh, in, in, in terms of the atheists, I mean, has there been a similar... I mean, there's a lot of literature in, in, in terms of sociology where atheists are feel discriminated against and there are uh, there is some evidence that they are discriminated against. Has that replicated itself in the military or...? Well, to the extent, I don't think anybody in the military is pushing religion. I shouldn't say nobody is, but by and large, I don't think that's the goal. And the chaplains, for sure, are very sensitive to the notion of uh, not proselytizing. That They don't understand their role as being there to con- convert people or evangelize or win them to whatever faith tradition they represent, um, but I think there it has definitely been a sense of the military culture has long involved religious rituals that don't necessarily come simply from the chaplaincy, but are, are a, you know a lingering aspect of Canadian Christian society. So it has been normal, uh, historically speaking, for uh, uh, parades or remembrance events and things like that to include prayers. Um, and so what's happened now is that there are multi-faith representation, but those who have said, well, I'm not interested in any faith representation, they may make that argument that, yeah, this is not acceptable to me because I don't believe in any of these things. Um, on the flip side, I think there has been more attention being paid to um, recognizing that rejection of and discomfort with um, orthodox frameworks for religion. Um, And that's not to say an atheist doesn't have any spiritual beliefs. It's often a a matter of resentment towards or anger at traditional religion and and things associated with traditional religion. So I think that's going to be anywhere, really, where people uh, who have a a shared kind of understanding of a process or an event, so a, a memorial event, for example, they have a shared notion of, well, this is how it's all been always being done, and this is what's appropriate. 
uh, I think that's going to be there um, with folks that come at it from a vantage point of, well, that's not my way and that's not my focus. And I think that, again, also just requires ongoing conversation and dialogue and opportunities to create um, different ways of, say, honoring the dead or, you know, whatever the whatever the process is. But I think there has to be uh, an awareness of, of those concerns before they can be addressed or changed. And again, because the literature is so sparse, I don't think that that awareness is there yet. So it's just sort of that undercurrent of frustration and anxiety. And and has that been experienced by, you know, the, you have an interesting section on, uh, or a short section on new religions also in terms of pagans who find themselves in the military, or how have they, in other words, you know, when we think of diversity, we think of Muslims, Jews, Hindus, and, and, and Sikhs, and so on, but then what happens to these kind of very small new religious movements, yeah, and how... The, the pagan groups were interesting, um, because that was something that kind of surprised me. There is actually a fairly large contingent, or appears to be, anyway, again, there's no statistics, so I can't validate that, but there appears to be a fairly large contingent of of active pagans in the Canadian forces. And I'm not sure why that is. Different people suggested different reasons behind it. One of them was that it's, uh, you know, often very feminist uh, way of believing. And so a lot of women in the forces have embraced um, paganism as an expression of their, their own, you know, spiritual or religious interests. But it seems to me that it was broader than that. And there are a lot of uh, websites and uh, discussion groups and blogs dedicated to um, pagans and Wiccans in the Canadian forces, and the um, it's often it often falls to the chaplain because the chaplain's role is to accommodate religious needs. It often falls to the chaplain, whatever tradition they are from, to accommodate the needs of any member of the unit that they serve. So, if you have, say, an evangelical Christian chaplain. And uh, you have a Wiccan in that unit that comes to them and says, well, I, I want to do this. I want to, you know, celebrate um, the summer solstice. Then the chaplain has to accommodate that religious need or to the extent that it's appropriate and that they can, meaning they have to, you know, always be concerned for the welfare of the of the uh, broader community and the, and the individuals involved and those kinds of things. But to the extent that they can accommodate it, they're required to. So... They, I think, have tried um, to do that, and there are numbers of examples in, you know, in the book, and also if you review some of the media reports about people in the field, ways in which they have uh, been uh, um, supported in their efforts to express this uh, or practice this uh, religious tradition. Uh, and it's quite interesting that, you know, again, I think that's a very paradoxical and unusual kind of uh, aspect of, of religion in the military, that you've got this sort of nature and holistic and, and uh, uh, old, old-timey old religion, uh, yeah. and, and it's linked up with this hard, institutionalized military context. It's a strange, it's a strange and interesting link there. So, so according to your research, you're saying that you suspect, anyway, even without quantitative data, that there's a higher proportion of, of new religions or pagans, at least, in the Canadian forces than in mainstream Canadian society, or is it kind of reflective? yeah? I couldn't, I couldn't, I honestly couldn't yeah. compare it because those numbers would be it would be a guess. But it's, I was just really surprised to find as much interest in it, both in, from people I met and interviewed, people who knew people. Uh, people would, you know, mm-hmm. frequently, oh yeah, I know somebody, that, oh yeah, I know this person, and it often came up in conversation, and then that there's just, there's a lot of stuff on the internet, um, pagans uh, and Wiccan groups uh, tend to be very comfortable in the um, internet kind of an environment, so that may just be a reflection of of that style of of, of uh, religion, or it may be that there are actually more of them there. I couldn't say, you know, which it is, but it it certainly would be another interesting avenue for uh, research for somebody that's inclined to go that way. Mm-hmm. 
Um, w- one of my more favorite chapters, I guess, is chapter three, where you talk about some of the personal challenges of the chaplaincy. And, and can you describe some of these challenges and, and what stood out to you most, I guess, um, when writing uh, in terms of some of the personal challenges and personality shifts that, that people are going through? Um, for the chaplains themselves, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, the chaplains are they're a, they're an interesting group of people. Um, these are people who they represent they they represent an orthodox context, and yet they work in a heterodox context. You know, so they they've been trained to be ministers or leaders of whatever their faith tradition is, um, and they have been assigned to a role. Uh, that belongs to their institutional model. And then they're put in a context where their number one priority is to serve the military institution's needs. And so they are, they're often pitted between their vocational calling and their institutional mandate and then trying to walk that line of how to serve both sides of that uh, and how to meet the needs of the individuals that they enlisted to support and also to um, ensure that they are fulfilling the obligations of their military mandate. That, I think, was probably a significant area for discussion for the full time that I was conducting the research. And that came from every level within the chaplaincy. People would talk about this. Yes, we know it's a challenge. It's there. But we try to negotiate it. And people would talk about different ways that they negotiated it or that in theory that it could have been negotiated. But when you when you heard stories from individuals, it was often a very complicated and very difficult task for many, many people. And so one example would be uh, with the situation with um, gay marriage. There were many people in the military that might choose to um, have a a wedding ceremony and be married uh, in a religious wedding. But only United Church ministers at the time were uh, able to validate that kind of a wedding. So if you have an evangelical minister who is in the first place against homosexuality, in the second place uh, not uh, allowed by his denomination or her denomination to to uh, uh, officiate over a gay marriage, you have this dual challenge where they, you know, people, you have to serve the, the, the military person's the, the members need their interest, their their religious desire to have this this um, right practice, but you also have to reject them and say, well, I can't do it for you, or I don't want to do it for you, or I think what you're doing is wrong. So there's this kind of continual negotiation that has to occur, um, both for the, the chaplain themselves and in relation to these other uh, two governing bodies that that they are responding to and also to the people that they are purported to, to uh, be serving. So you mean institutionally there are, you know, the rights and freedoms that they have to uphold, but then religiously they may be against some of those. Yeah. So, I mean, even, and that's not just the chaplains, that's also believers. So I interviewed one person who was a, a very traditional evangelical, and, and his issue, one of his issues was that women had no place in the military. So it wasn't even a, you know, I mean, there are broader issues that different faith traditions come in conflict with one another, but he was saying, no, the, the military is a man's environment, it's a man's world, there's no place for women here. Really, he said to me, he said to me, really women belong in, you know, barefoot and in the kitchen, that's really where they belong. And I was thinking, wow, and I said to him, that must be incredibly challenging for you to work in this environment with this integrated kind of situation where you're working with women and men, you're working with people of different countries. And he says, yes, it is. <laughs> he felt that he was being discriminated against to have to, you know, to right. exist in this kind of uh, mixed world. <laughs> um, it, it, do, I don't know how much you're f- familiar with the American situation, but are, are there any parallels in terms of these similar struggles going on uh, with the U.S. military and the Canadian military? Yeah, I think it, virtually everything that all of the themes that come up in my book um, are 
are in evidence uh, in the American system as well, except that probably they have more diversity, uh, simply because they're a much, much larger force. Um, they, uh, as I mentioned, there is a new book uh, by one of my colleagues in the States, and it, it echoes um, so much of what I I identified, but rather than looking at the individual experiences, it deals exclusively with the chaplaincy. But still, the the frames, um, the frameworks are 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 very closely aligned to, uh, you know, issues related to diversity, changing tasks, um, uh, trying to provide support for people that don't fit into a an orthodox framework anymore. All of those kinds of issues, and then you know, human rights issues linked to um, religious expression, religious diversity, and and also other kinds of diversity, right? So um, women's rights and um, gay rights and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, this may not be so much of a religious question, but did anything come out in your interviews in terms of how the Canadian pub- how people felt the Canadian public viewed the military or how the international community viewed the Canadian forces? Because, you know, there's a lot of Sometimes people make a lot of fun of the Canadian yeah. military, right? So, uh, did that did that come out in any of the yeah at different or? times and in different ways it did. You know, there's that whole national myth of Canada being a country of peacekeepers, right? That one always comes up, and um, and uh, it, I think that was a point of frustration to a lot of people um, that I met. Not because they weren't proud of being peacekeepers, they were, but they were arguing that it's much more complicated than that. Uh, and that they're not just trained to be blue helmets. They're trained to do all kinds of things. So people would tell me stories about, you know, being bivouacked in a field that was that week by week would get, uh, you know, rained on um, like m- like nine inches at a time. And they would by the time they were done, that the platforms that they had built to sleep on were actually right on the surface of the water and it was just miserable and it was cold and they were they you know there was there was all kinds of illness and there were infections and there was uh, mosquitoes and bugs and 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 that was simply an observation role so they weren't technically they weren't doing anything and so they were frustrated by the fact that you know this is the kind of task that sometimes uh they're given and people don't fully understand that it, it's not just that, well, we go to fight wars or we go to stop wars or we do all kinds of different things. Like we're the people that are burying bodies when there's, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of people dying from cholera and we're the people that are, you know, digging holes for, for uh, context where something's been blown up and, we're we're the people that are doing this really grungy dirty work and we're the people that are getting shot at you know so i think it was frustration to some degree that they really are misunderstood by the canadian population but i think in canada too we are i think we are still at that place where we're trying to on the one hand differentiate ourselves from the americans and on the other hand uh align ourselves with uh, the economic context that is linked to an American global structure. So it's it's a challenging uh, place to be as as the neighbors to the most powerful country in the world, uh, deciding which priorities we will set for ourselves and how that will look um, in our in our military role. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I guess when I first think of the religion of the military, the, the what comes to mind is this issue of post-traumatic stress and, and things of that nature. So, did you get any comments or or, or or reflections from the chaplaincy about you know not having the training to deal with some of these issues or being or feeling that they were out of their depth or uh, did that not? Come no, up that so much? came up all the time, and you know the challenge of how do we do this. And one of the things the chaplains always talk about is um, their um, they they have what they call a ministry of presence. And so they feel like one of the number one services they can provide is to help people to know that they're not alone, uh, that they are facing these difficult situations, that they have these challenging experiences, and that there's somebody in the military that understands that they need to be human sometimes rather than just automatons or 
um, you know, tools of, of a military institution. And they provide that. Uh, one, one chaplain said to me that place of sanctuary where people can just come and be human, where they can just come and talk. They can let their guard down. They don't have to worry about their superior hearing that they might be stressed out or might be stressing out. They don't have to worry about their peers looking at them and saying, ah, you can't handle it. You're a weakling. Um, but they're the, the chaplain, because they're outside of the chain of command and they're not required to report on every conversation that they have the way that a social worker would be. Um, they, they can create that safe space for people. And I, and they were, they acknowledged that, Frequently, people were coming to them because they had stresses in their lives, and they might not just be—they might not be exclusively linked to their military or operational role. It can also be things like, you know, I've been put on a rotation. This is my third one, and my family is really struggling with it, and my marriage is in trouble, and and so personal issues related to their role, um, or you know, you know, any number of different challenges. I, I, I find myself drinking too much because I'm. I don't want to think about the things that I saw. And so looking for support for those kinds of challenges, but any kinds of um, stresses in a person's life often were brought to the chaplain's door first because it was a safer place to take it than to say a social worker or a medical uh, worker or any of those kinds of things. Uh, there's been a lot of debate in the United States uh, with respect to how, the veterans' issues and how veterans are treated when they return. Um, as far as I can tell, we haven't had that same conversation in Canada. Uh, do, do you see some of the same challenges, or what, what, what's kind of unique about the Canadian situation? In, in that I sense? think that there are certain people and certain groups that are very concerned about and committed to um, supporting veterans. I think Romeo Dallaire has been an excellent advocate uh, in that context, but I really feel that in Canada we are sweeping that issue under the rug uh, and that we have not yet seen the fallout uh, from our most recent conflicts. I feel that, you know, it used to be, at the very least, these uh, old veterans could hang out at the Legion and at least find a small space where they could be among people that understood them to some degree, but even that, I think, is going by the wayside. I don't think that there is enough of a, a cultural context of support for people who have seen and done the kinds of things that um, these young men and women have done and seen. And, and you know, whether it's in Afghanistan or whether it's in Haiti or whether it's in uh, Malaysia, wherever it is that they've been, whatever it is that they've been doing, they've seen some pretty nasty stuff a lot of times and they have been through some a tremendous mental anguish and I don't think as a society that we have done really anything to uh, to help them to be reintegrated or to be recognized for uh, that kind of uh, a sacrifice and it's a, it's a huge sacrifice but you know I don't think we like to talk in that language I think people in Canada and maybe other parts of the world too, but I think in Canada we we are so afraid of being identified as militaristic. We don't want to be militaristic, so we, we that, I think that's where that national myth of being peacekeepers comes from. We want to be the good guys, but I think at the same time we don't recognize that if we want to be the good guys and we want to put our our military personnel into places that help and that serve and that protect that those people are very likely to come out injured in the process you know damaged and burdened and and then so what is our responsibility as a society subsequent to that what's our role how do we how do we then express our gratitude and our appreciation for upholding um that aspect of our canadian identity i don't think we've i don't think we've had that conversation and i think it is going to need to be had uh, because I think there are a lot of people that are suffering uh, because of what they've done. Suffering privately? Yes, yes. Not, yeah, I yeah. just really don't think there's a, a, a real, a really good um, support network yet for, for them to either to express their experiences or to to engage with others or to be, to be honored or recognized or supported by the uh, civilian population. I don't know, and I don't suggest that I know what that would look like because 
I don't think it would be the same as what we've done in the past. Like, I don't think Remembrance Day is going to work for those people. Um, I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole new world. But what that looks like, I don't know. But I just think that there, we have failed in that respect as a society. We have not, we have not put the, the other. We've never taken the the second step following the idea that well, we want to be more than just a combat force. We want to be a humanistic kind of force, well, then we have to provide for the humans that are involved in it. And I'm not sure that we've done that yet. Right. But, uh, I mean, in, in terms of the comparison with the U.S., you, they, they don't um, have the same kind of bureaucratic difficulties in getting, you know, money and health care and those kinds of situations, I imagine. Uh, I think it's dependent on the individual. I've, I've heard different stories. And again, this is not an area that I, I know well, so I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I don't, I can't give you statistics or numbers specifically on this, but I've heard a number of stories of people who, especially with PTSD, because it's sometimes invisible until it explodes, right? So it's, uh, it's not like you come back and you say, well, I need a prosthetic leg. It's that you come back and you have difficulty being in crowds, you know, <laughs> and that, and then that right. that goes downhill. That well, now I can't drive, and now I don't. Now I can't go into large uh, areas where there's going to be noise and and um, activities that are going to set me off. And and eventually, you know, those people end up that maybe they can't work, or maybe that they they have no quality of life. And um, I think that this PTSD issue and stress related injuries uh, that's the area that that's the the pot that's simmering right now and will eventually bubble over and has bubbled over there are, there are stories of individuals who have really been destroyed by what they've seen abroad and i i described several of those in the book but people who have ended up just being abandoned essentially by by the the military system and not ever received the support that they needed and you know, some of them end in suicide and some of them end in murder and some of them end in, you know, horrible things because these people simply they can't cope and then they don't cope and then a crisis happens. Yeah. It's not really a national conversation that no, we're having. not at all. Not yet. <laughs> um, from the publication of your book, what has been the reaction from the military itself? Have, have they um, incorporated any of the findings, or has there been a backlash of any kind? There's been different reactions. I think there, there was a lot of appreciation, a lot of use of the book by the uh, chaplains uh, themselves, and it has been adopted in different leadership courses um, at RMC, Royal Military College. So there's certainly a lot of interest um Particularly, I think, again, there's a resistance outside of the chaplaincy. There's a resistance to uh, taking any particular focus on religion. But there is an interest in being what they call um, uh, culturally competent. So understanding the different groups uh, within the ranks. So there's there's interest there. Uh, I think there will be... It, it will be interesting to see how things develop as we increase... The diversity right now, uh, the diversity in the forces is really still quite—it's minimal. You know, there are there are a handful of people that are just okay with being very visible minorities, uh, and then there are many people that think, "Well, why would I go there? Because I don't see anybody else that looks like me there, and that's not a comfortable place for me to be." So I think as uh, you know, years pass and we see a much more significant integration within the military. That the issues that I've outlined and identified will become far more uh, poignant, and there will be more attention being paid at that time. But right now, I think it's just—it's almost barely on their radar that that they need to be too too concerned with this. They deal with the issues on a case by case basis. So you know. Um, uh, an individual comes to say their chaplain or their sergeant and says, "I, I follow this tradition. I need these meals. I need this accommodation," and they make it happen. But you know what happens when you have a whole unit that requires certain accommodation? How do you integrate them with other groups? What what questions are being asked? What does that look like? So they haven't got to that place yet. So I think that will be. Um, that's yet to be seen as we as we move forward in our increasingly multicultural context here in Canada. That will be a very a very interesting uh, development to watch.
Right. That's kind of the next obvious step in the multicultural right. process. <laughs> um, so uh, what are you working on next uh, in terms of your research projects, and is there another book in the works somewhere? Actually, I have a, uh, an edited volume coming out um, this November, and it's on some of the work that I've been doing uh, since the Religion in the Ranks book has been tied to international development uh, and the engagement of students uh, in higher education, actually, uh, going in and having um, experiences in the developing world. So, you know, what that looks like, how it's enacted, uh, how that fits with a neoliberal approach to higher education in Canada, uh, questions about uh, neocolonialism and, uh, you know, white privilege and all that kind of stuff. And so the book that is coming out now is called The World is My Classroom. It's a co-edited volume with uh, Dr. Michelle Desjardins at Wilfrid Laurier, and it is a um, a collaborative piece with people from across the country, really, and it looks at issues in internationalizing Canadian higher education. Um, and it talks about it, it, the the link, I would say, between the book Religion in the Ranks and this one is that, again, it's looking at uh, a Canadian institution and the role of values and the way that those values either align with or conflict with notions of Canadian identity and Canadian projects, especially in the international sphere. So uh, we are continuing that work with with other studies, but that's been my most recent project. And then, you know, odds and ends, <laughs> papers here and there. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Uh, the, the book, again, is Religion in the Ranks, Belief and Religious Experience in the Canadian Forces, published by University of Toronto Press in 2011. Um, and thanks again for joining us, Joanne. Right, thanks so much, Amar. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus